chapter of John. We deal with two different things here. Um, let's see how far we get. I've, I've prepared or, or studied for the whole chapter through verse 38, and I feel certain that we won't anywhere near get through verse 38, but since we're going to come next week, it'll already be prepared. Uh, this is the last night, the Thursday night before the crucifixion on Friday. And it's John's account of just a couple of things that happened. He doesn't go into any great detail to give us all the details of what happened that night. But we know they've come together, the Lord and the disciples, and they've come together for that last Passover feast. And before he institutes the Lord's Supper, the things in John's account take place before the institution of the Lord's Supper. He includes here the, the turning away, uh, the dealing with with Judas and Judas leaving the room, but he doesn't record what happens after that. In the next chapters, we'll have some discourses, different discourses that he had in that upper room. But in this chapter, we're going to deal, first of all, with a matter of foot washing. What was that a picture of? What was that to teach us? And the second thing we'll deal with, with Judas, the account of Judas in the betrayal, his leaving to betray, filled with the devil at that point, and leaving to betray the Lord. And the third thing that we'll deal with is love. The 11th commandment, that we love one another. I can't wait to get to that one. I had the best time with that one. But we should, when we're asked how many commandments there are, and we usually say 10 commandments, there are 11. Because he said, this is a commandment, I give, a new commandment that I give to you. I add this to the other 10, that you love one another. And that people know that you're my disciples by your love. And he's going to go into that in a... a tremendous kind of way. So it's the Passover festival. If you can get the picture here of, of the way a, um, a dinner or supper uh, would take place with the low table and the reclining benches, and each one would be reclining so close together that there was somebody's head on somebody's breast. Somebody's head was close to somebody's breast. And keep that in mind because the picture indicates that where John the Apostle was leaning to the right of Jesus and reclining on the breast of Jesus, it would probably mean, according, if you put it all together and get the, a look at it, it would probably mean that Jesus' head was resting on Judas' breast. And I want you to keep that picture in mind because they're going to talk. There's dialogue between... Manner, which is what it said, he had to be close. And so he probably had Judas sitting in the honored, honored place, probably in the, to the left of him. Another one of love's appeal at the last minute somehow to reach Judas so that he wouldn't do this terrible thing and go out and betray him. At that point, the devil had not entered him. He was not a believer. We'll see that. He was not regenerated. Uh, Jesus said in here, according to this gospel, that he had never received the bathing or the cleansing. So he was not a regenerated person. He was not a child of God at that point. But he was neither controlled by Satan at that time. Satan did not dwell within him. He still had a choice to make, even at that late date. And we're going to see Jesus reaching out to him and appealing to him time after time. It's the right way to choose uh, himself instead of Satan. So if you've got that picture in mind, let's go into it and see what, what we can discover in these scriptures. Do you remember in Luke twenty two twenty four? if we go over to that gospel account, we pick up something that we might need to know in order to understand this a little bit better. And that's where we see that the disciples who had been with him for three years, as much as they should have learned from him, they didn't, they learned very little. 
They didn't understand themselves that he was going to be the suffering servant, the fulfillment of the suffering servant prophecies. They even at this point believed that he was going to set up that messianic kingdom right then. These are the, the twelve. They really believed that there was not going to be a cross the next day. As many times as he had said this, somehow in their hearts they would not accept what they didn't want to hear. And so even at this point, the day before, they were still believing that he was going to set up that messianic <coughs> kingdom in some kind of unusual way. God was going to come out and with all this power from heaven and just deliver them from the Romans and set up this kingdom. So at this point, the disciples were arguing among themselves who's going to be the greater. And you have to keep that in mind in order to get an understanding of the foot washing experience, what he was teaching at that point. And so if you have people like James and John arguing about who was going to be in the on the left and who was going to be on the right, and you have the, the leader like Peter, of course, he probably thought that he should deserve to be in a place of prominence. And so many of these disciples wanting, wanting to know ahead of time what I'm going to be doing. See, so much emphasis is put so many times upon the job, what I'm going to be able to do, even in the service of God, even within a church, even right here. People put such an emphasis on having the most important job, the job with the most spotlight on it. And they were no different, even though they had been that close to the Lord for, for three years, three and a half years at this point. They wanted so desperately to have the most important jobs. Now, they wanted to serve him, to be sure, but self was still such a part of their lives until nobody wanted to do the menial task. Nobody wanted to sit at the end of the table. Each one wanted to be in the place of prominence, right next to Jesus. And so there was a necessity to teach this lesson. So let's look at... It was before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that his hour had come. How many times he had said, my hour has not come to his mother, to the disciples, to his brothers. He had said time after time, my hour has not come. Now he knows his hour has come. The time has come for him to be glorified, for him to be crucified. Every time it mentions in John's gospel that he would be glorified, the time when he would be glorified, it's speaking of the cross. And he must leave this world and go to the Father. He had always loved his own who were in the world. And now he was to show the full extent of his love. And this is New English, but tell me, somebody give me your translation of, of that part. And now he was to show the full, ex does somebody have in your translation, he was to love them to the end? All right, this is more accurate. Read that for us. Read that first, or uh, the second, uh, the first verse. Surely read that for me. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, and he loved them unto the end. To the end. I like that one. I like that especially because this is the way he loves. He doesn't love temporarily. He loves so fully and so completely, and he loves to the end. And this is the way he loves and cares for us today. Those of us who are his own, it will be a caring and a loving to the end. He's never going to let us go, not for a minute. And so, to me, that's the full extent of love. So this, this doesn't contradict. It really just elaborates on how you love to the end. That's the full extent of love that never gives up on anybody, that never calls a halt to it until the end. All right, so verse 2. The devil had already put in the mind of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during the supper, Jesus, well aware that the Father had entrusted everything to him. I want you to remember that phrase right there. Jesus, well aware that the Father had entrusted everything to him. He knew he was the Son of God. He knew that everything in the whole universe was in his care. He knew that all these people, by virtue of creation, belonged to him. He knew that those who were redeemed belonged to him by virtue of redemption. And so all of these things he knew were his. Now look at what he does. He is of all the most important person. 
And yet he's willing to strip himself of pride. He's really willing to strip himself down to the point of utter humility to do what he's about to do. Jesus, the do the most menial task. And that spoke to me this week, I think, out of here like nothing else did except for the portion on love. The fact that we think we are too good many times to do the, the mundane things, the menial things, but Jesus didn't. He was God, and yet he was willing to stoop down like a slave and wash somebody's feet. <laughs> How many of us would wash somebody's feet? And th this hurt me. I, it really did, because <laughs> it spoke to my heart, and it said something to me, because I'm not like that, see? And this, this is it, and I want to answer that in here, but there are some very sincere people who still today believe that this is the third instituted sacrament. This is the third thing that we're to do along with the Lord's Supper and baptism, that there should be a foot washing. But I want to bring out one thing in here that I think will answer that. During the supper, Jesus, well aware that the Father had entrusted everything to him and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the table, laid aside his garments, that's a stripping off of his royalty, the rabbi garments, and taking a towel, tied it around him, girded around himself, that was a badge of a slave. Here again, a picture they had to understand. Not um, one who was going to sit on a throne at that point, but one who would be that suffering servant. And he gir to gird yourself around with the towel and begin to wash the feet was exactly like saying to them, look, you've messed up. You, your picture of me is wrong. Look to me as the suffering servant, the one who in all humility will take upon my body and upon myself all the sin of the world and become total sin for the salvation of the world. Look, see the picture and get the picture. All right, so then he says he, he stooped down and he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. Now, the custom was then that there anybody with any kind of m money at all would have a slave, and when guests would come into the home for a dinner occasion like this, there, there would be these water pots outside the door. And the slave's duty was to make sure every guest was tended to in such a way that as he had walked along the dusty roads and got to the house, when he came in, he didn't need a bath, he just needed his dirty feet washed. And so this slave would take the guest and put him down, and he would begin to wash his feet and wipe them. Now, the disciples, Jesus didn't have any slaves. They didn't have enough money to have a slave who went around and washed their feet. So Jesus was saying, in this inner community, none of us is too big or too important to do the most menial thing in service for the other. And he has to show them this. He must show them this picture in order for them to understand what he's about to do. So many things are taught in this, and we'll go through several different ones. But when it was Simon Peter's turn, and apparently from that we know that he had already washed several disciples' feet, feet um, Peter said to him, You, Lord, washing my feet, you do not understand now what I'm doing, but one day you will, Jesus replied. Peter, you know, he's always the one who opens his mouth. When, when Jesus is doing something, he never, ever got it in his head that what Jesus was doing, whatever it was, was right. See, he never quite understood that. And he always felt like he had to come along and correct him if he was doing something wrong. And at this point, I think in his own mind, he felt that he was right. He didn't want the Lord to be doing some service of a slave for him. So that much was right. But the part that was wrong was that if Jesus was doing it, it was right. 
Now, does that make sense? That sounds so confusing. But if he could have ever learned that lesson, he would have saved himself a lot of embarrassing situations. And so Jesus said, you don't understand what I'm doing, but one day you will. And Curtis, that's where I think we need to get that statement of Jesus in order to understand. Of course, if it was a literal foot washing that he was saying do, they understood foot washing, literal foot washing. But Jesus said, you don't understand what I'm doing, but one day out here you will. So the literal washing of the feet, they understood. If that was what he was saying to them to keep doing for each other, then that he would never have inserted that statement. You don't understand this, but one day out here, spiritual significance to this story that they were to learn one day out here in the future. I want you to turn to First uh, Peter 5, 4, and 5. The Lord had been crucified, died, resurrected at the right hand of the Father, and Peter is writing this, and he says, And then when the head shepherd appears, you will receive for your own the unfading garland of glory. In the same way, you younger men must be subordinate to your elders. Indeed, all of you should wrap yourselves in the garment of humility towards each other, because God sets his face against the arrogant but favors the humble. Now, where did he learn this? Where did Peter learn that lesson? He learned it from this experience that night. You see, out here in the future, he understood what Jesus was doing at that point. And it was revealed to him in a clear kind of way. And now he writes and he says to them, listen, we must gird ourselves about with humility. There's nothing, there's, there's, there's no place in the, the Christian walk for the arrogant, for the one who thinks he's too good to do anything. If we could ever come to the place where we take that away from ourselves, that thought that we are too important or we're too, in good, too good to do even the most menial of tasks, we would be ready to be used by the Lord. But we're not like that. We're not like that. We, we get the job we want and we think this is what we've got to do because it has importance attached to it and it has prestige and power attached to it. And from then on, we don't want anything any less than that. And many of us are going to have to be knocked right flat on our face before we get this lesson that he's teaching here. It's all in here. All right, when it, it says, when it was Simon Peter, and he answers this, and Jesus said, you don't understand. And Peter said, I will never let you wash my feet. And the, the, that's that double negative. I will never not, never, <laughs> never not, never let you wash my feet. And you see, that's the way he is. He speaks, and right then he would never not, never, ever let Jesus wash his feet. But listen, he changed. I never saw anything like Peter. He's so much like me. Maybe that's the reason I love this man so much. He was convinced at that point he would never let this happen. And then Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you're not in fellowship with me. Circle the whip. Circle the whip. Fellowship. Circle the fellowship. Circle the fellowship with me. And this is the key to understanding this whole. It's like an enacted parable, if you will. This is what this whole account is. He says, if I don't wash you, you are not in fellowship with me. He didn't say in union in me. So it has nothing to do with salvation. He said nothing about being this being a, a, a thing that caused us to come into union in Christ. That had been done when we were bathed in the blood in our initial salvation experience. But he said there is something that you're going to need. It's a daily cleansing, a daily cleansing from sin. And if you want to be in fellowship with me, there must be this cleansing of your, of your walk. And if you keep two things in mind, when they spoke of feet and walks, they spoke of your, your daily life, your feet, this traveling through the, 
you know, through the streets in, in the course of a day. They were talking about your walk with the Lord. And when they talk about uh, fellowship, that's communion. So your walk and your communion are the things that are key things in these particular verses. Then, uh, then Peter changes. Now, we'll go back to that in just a minute, but I want you to see Peter's change. Where he said, one breath, I will never, not never let you ever wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you're not in fellowship with me. You won't have any fellowship with me, Peter. Well, Peter couldn't stand that. He wanted to be in fellowship with the Lord. So in one second, he says, then, Lord, not my feet only. Wash my head, my hands. Wash me from head to toe. You see, he had just said, never, no, never. I'll never let you even wash my feet. Now, in the next breath, he said, wash my whole body. Started my head, wash. I can't, and I like, you have to admire him for that. He didn't want to be separated in any way from the Lord as far as fellowship was concerned. <laughs> and so different things, some things that uh, we'll bring out at this point. Um, foot washing teaches humility, and that's what I think most of us have heard more than anything else. This account, that it teaches humility, and it does. But so many of the things, especially recorded in John, teach so many more things, more than what just one spiritual lesson. You can't miss the taking off of the pride and the humbly serving, you know, serving in service for the Lord. That's there. And the humility, it says that I'm never too proud to do anything. But then more than that, there's a need for daily cleansing of our walk in order to have fellowship with God. And this is what we've been hearing of more and more, especially through speakers and encouragers like Bertha Smith. When she says to us, there's a necessity, you have a wall built up with sin in your life that, that accumulates over a period sometimes of years. There'll be different things. Let, let's look at some of them. She described a wall that each one is like a, a brick forming a wall that separates us from God in our daily life. We're saved to be sure, but there's this wall that's built up, and so we wonder why we don't have any fellowship with him. And I began to think of some things that were like those bricks on that wall that she was talking about, things that would separate, things we need cleansing from each day, daily cleansing, if these are things that are problems in our individual lives. Pride. You can't miss pride. And isn't that the one that stumbles up, us up more than anything else? is that, that ego pride thing that just causes us more harm than it causes, ever causes good. Worry. Worry. See, anytime this is evident in your life and you allow it to stay there unconfessed, it's separating. It's separating us as far as fellowship is concerned from the Lord. Anxiety. Self-pity. Is that the worst thing you're right? That's the worst. If I had to put one on the top, I think we'd do this. Self-pity leads to self-destruction in every single case. You begin to feel so sorry for yourself and what nobody's doing for you and what, you know, what you're not getting and, and on and on and on. It's so self-centered until it will, in the end, cause self-destruction. Don't ever allow yourself to, to wallow in self-pity. I just read a book, that book that I just got through leading, reading this past week. It had a whole chapter in there. And, and watch for Betty Comstock's book racks in those stores that she's servicing. This is her ministry in the community. And, and get some books from it. If you run across one that you need, buy from that rack. But anyway, there was a whole chapter on this and the damage and destruction of self-pity. All right, materialism. What about materialism? Always thinking we've got to have something that we don't need. We anymore need. But man, we want everything laid in our lap. We never want to be deprived of anything, do we? It's hard for us to ever understand why we can't have, 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 have. We, if, if something we really want, we think we ought to have it. We really think we deserve it, don't we? 
And so materialism becomes such a block to fellowship with Christ. Compromise. What about compromise? We're the biggest compromisers in the whole world, us Christians. We are. About lust, hatred, jealousy, and envy, self-consciousness. You can build a wall. You can see how it begins to happen. What he's saying in here is there's a need to come to Jesus daily. When, Like the picture of the, the houses built around an, a center court. And in that center court was a bath. Now once a day, hopefully, you would go down to the bath and put your whole body in and get your whole body clean. That happened once. But every time you would go out from that experience and you would go into a dusty road or something, you would come back and need to have your feet cleansed. You see the picture he's drawing here? There would be a need for additional daily cleansing that would cause you to have fellowship with Jesus. There's your thing you circled. Fellowship with Jesus is dependent upon that daily foot washing. That daily... Now, what it all boils down to is simply this. When we go through the course of a day, and we've allowed more, you could add to that list a hundred times over, but we add any, allow any of these things to, to lie dormant in our life or to be active in our life, we allow them to stay there unconfessed, then we separate ourselves as far as fellowship with God is concerned by our own will, by our own allowing of these things to stay there because he's made provision for daily cleansing, for daily foot washing, washing of our walk, washing of the sins along our walk in life. And what provision has been made has been this. John said in 1 John, he said, if, if we are faithful to confess our sins, he's, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us, to make us white as snow. So we should get to a place where we desire with Peter the fellowship with Christ so much that every day, as, as soon as anything comes that you know is contrary, you know would separate us, we should desire that fellowship so much that it should cause us to confess that immediately. Immediately. And then thank him. Don't hang on to it. Then thank him that he has made provision to forgive daily to allow the fellowship with him to exist between us and him. So we need to come to a place where we recognize that that's true. If we're not having fellowship with Christ, if we feel like we're separated, we feel like we have no peace, it's because there's so much unconfessed sin in our lives and so many things that we know to be sin, but we're going to let them stay there or bust a gut. And that's what we do. There are some things we know are so wrong in our lives, but we like it so much we don't care whether we have fellowship with God or not. When it boils right down to it, if it meant doing something about it, in order to have fellowship with God, we'd do something about it. We do something about it. But by virtue of the fact that we say, no, I like this self-pity, I like this worry, I like this anxiety, and I'm not going to let go of it, even though he's made provision to cover and cleanse and, and forgive me of it, I'm just going to hang right on to it because I wallow beautifully in it. Then we separate ourselves from fellowship, daily fellowship with the Lord. And we do it to ourselves. All right, now, another thing that was brought out in Ironside's copy was that water, through the Gospel of John, always refers to the Word. When he speaks of water, he's speaking of the Word. And when he speaks of feet, he speaks of the walk. So what it's saying when he says, a little further on, we'll come to that, when he says that we should do this unto others, 
our other brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a need when there's a person over here with a problem and a, a, a fault that, that he's caught up in and he's out of fellowship with God. We're to go with him with a word, with a word from the Bible, with a word of encouragement from the Lord. And we to, should lead them to a place where they can understand that they can be cleansed and forgiven. And he brought out the fact, something that I thought was so good. He said, as Christians, when Jesus took the water, he didn't have scalding water and he didn't have ice cold water. He had water that you could rest in. He had water that you could rest in. And he said, when you go to a fellow Christian and you begin to share a word of encouragement to help them, don't go with scalding water. Blasting them out of their seats, you know. Thumbs down. This lady I'm going to talk to at 12 o'clock noon has just had an experience with somebody who came to her and gave her the old hellfire and damnation bit until it's going to take all the grace of God in the world and all the love that I can share with her and the compassion I can share with her to undo the damage that some well-meaning Christian has, I guess, done in going to her and saying, you're going to hell, you know, you're all messed going to hell. Well, they may be going, but there's a... Uh, another approach, and it's approach done in love. It's an approach done in love. You don't take ice cold water. You don't take scalding water. You take water that they can put their feet in, and they can rest and listen to you in it, and they can hear from God. And you're not the one who is the stumbling block for them. All right. So now here's the rest of the story. Jesus said, "A man who's been bathed needs no further washing." Now, you have one bathing in the blood of Jesus, one salvation experience. Now, that person doesn't need washing. He is altogether clean. He's altogether clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. And he adds that one of you, Judas, is not clean. Judas is not regenerated. All right, he added the words, not every one of you, because he knew who was going to betray him. But the others, he said, according to the words of Jesus, had been regenerated. And remember, this was prior to the cross, but they were saved before the cross by the faith they put in the finished work on the cross out in the future. So it's the same salvation. It's just that one looks forward to it and one looks back to it. And so these 11 of these disciples were um, born again. All right, so verse 12, he says, After washing their feet and taking his garments again, he sat down. Do you understand what I've done? He asked. You call me Master and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. And then if I'm your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You know, if I have ministered to you in utter humility, in a way that, that stripped of pride, in a way that, that taught a lesson and encouraged and lifted you up and brought you to a place where you could know what could be done for you. If, if I've done all of these things that I listed that came out of that, and, and you here again may know more, you may have had insight into even deeper meaning into this passage, but all of those are surely there. He said, what I've done, what I've done, you ought to do also to each other. And these are his last, remember, he's speaking to his own. From now on, he's speaking to his own. And he's going to give us one word after the other of things he expects from us. And this is one. He expects us to serve each other. And he doesn't expect anything to be too much to ask of, of us to do. There was one thing, and I don't know where I wrote it, but I was writing. Oh, here it is. For instance, doing for one another. Uh, I thought, and, and I wish we had time to share, because each one of you have known people in your life who were pictures of those who nothing was too much to ask of them or nothing was too big a task to ask for them to do, or nothing was too little. And I gave you one example of a man, you know, who 
I established the mission that time and would go down after work on Sunday afternoon and get in and scrub the floors and everything, never letting anybody know what he had done. He didn't need that. He was willing to do the scrubbing uh, just for the glory of God, just to do something for God and to show his love. But I was reminded of this woman in Mobile, and she happened to be one of the people who affected my life the most. She was the wife of the preacher there, and she was beautiful. I mean, one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. And just uh, the picture of perfection and poise and everything. She, she needed to be put on a pedestal, I guess. And as the preacher's wife, she never had to do anything mundane. I'm, sh- I'm sure she could have just rested on that laurel. And she was a great Sunday school teacher, fantastic. She was my, one of my first Sunday school teachers and the one who was teaching me when I finally began to be convicted of sin. So she was used in that kind of way. Now, that would have been enough. Add being the preacher's wife, add being a great Sunday school teacher, that would have been enough to have, been asked, to have asked her to do. But you know what I admired about this woman, I think, more than anything else, and that was that if somebody was sick and they had six kids, six little kids, you know who went and got the six kids and kept them? This woman. Just like a mother to those children. It didn't matter whether it was months. She would have kept them for months. Do you know that if, if somebody was in real distress and in, in real trouble, you know who would go into the house without anybody knowing about it and scrub the floors, clean the bathrooms, cook the meals? This woman. And every now and then, the strangest thing she would do, I think that just capped it all off, every now and then I'd hear my, a horn blowing in my driveway, and I'd run out, and there she'd be sitting in the car with fried okra. And that may not seem very much to you, but let me tell you what she would say. She'd say, you know, I know, you do, I know how you love fried okra, and I know you never fix it for yourself. And we were having it tonight, and our family couldn't eat. We just couldn't start eating until we had shared fried okra with you. And see, she didn't have to do that. She never had to do any of those things because her place was so prominent, you know. The first lady of the church. She was in a place where she had to do anything mundane like cleaning up little babies for somebody or cleaning floors or frying okra for you. But she had learned a lesson I think that all of us need to learn, and that's none of us are too big and too important to do the most menial things when we see a need like that. And she, oh, she was a picture. Do you know she even had a hysterectomy and never had a problem? I wondered sometimes if I, she, there was no place in her life for self-pity or anxiety or worry or, or thinking I've had it so bad because I've had a hysterectomy and all that kind of stuff. She just didn't have anything like that. You know, that was, she let be evident in her life, and she was never defeated by anything that I know of. She made an impression on me. And I got to thinking when I started to go back, um, things like Dick wrote in his article. He wrote, one of the things he wrote, he said, thanks to Joe Carr, Joe Carr does more than all of us put together as far as work is concerned. She's the youth director. She has more on her than anybody I know of. But when Anita rose over in that house, she was the one who went and stayed up all night. She was the one who went and did the menial service type things for them on top of keeping a family of six and on top of of all the work that she does and it's just mass lots of works. But you know, those are the people who've learned this lesson. They're the ones who've learned this lesson. I know everybody's not able to do all of these things, but I just think for the most part, most of us would not be willing to do these things or to get up and act on it without somebody, maybe if somebody came to us and said, would you do this? We might do it, but most of us would not take the initiative and act on this and show this to our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
All right, so now let's go. That's it. Boy, that's chock full, isn't it? If you think it hurts you, it hurts me. And it's hurt me all ever since I went into this. It's opened my eyes to how little I do and how little there is in this area that's evident in my life. So it's hurt. But if it doesn't ever hurt us, we'll never do anything about it, will we? He says, I'm speaking about all of you. Oh, oh no, we, I almost forgot something. I can't forget that. He said, go back up. He said, then if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash, serve one another. I have set you an example. You are to do as I have done for you. In truth, verily I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger than the one who sent you. There is nothing Jesus ever did that we shouldn't be willing to do just as much of, because we're certainly not any greater than he is. And if you think that you might be better than somebody else on this earth, put your plumb line there and let your plumb line be Jesus. And look at what he did. And certainly we're not any better than he is. So if he did it, we can't claim that we're any greater than he is. All right, so he says, if you know this, happy are you if you act upon it. I'm so glad he added that. Aren't you glad he added that? We all want to know how to be happy, don't we? Nobody likes to be miserable. Everybody wants to be happy. And he says at the very end of this discourse on service and humility, you're happy if you learn this lesson and you act on it. It's true. It is true. Huh? Verse 17. What does your translation say? Mine says, if you know this, happy are you. If you act on it. Not if you know this, you're happy. You're happy if you act on it. Okay, so if you want to be happy, go to all the passages in the scripture where it says this is the way you're happy. Happy if you do the will of God, it says. You're happy if you act upon this. Stripping yourself of humility. Oh, and when we get to the, pa- to the part on love, that'll be probably next week. But when we get to that, it'll show you some things about how to be happy. Um, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but there's a text of Scripture to be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has turned against me. Psalm 41, 9 prophesied this. The one who ate the bread that he gave to him would be the one who turned against him. I tell you this now before the event so that when it happens, you may believe that I am what I am. In very truth, I tell you, he who receives any messenger of mine receives me. Receiving me, he receives the one who sent me. And he's going to begin, and this is, we're about five minutes early, but if we're two lessons this week and next week, this is where we need to stop because the next, after the foot washing, is the account after the, during the supper when he took the bread and the, also the discourse on love, the 11th commandment. And that'll split us up halfway. We'll take, go back to that. We had that last week, but let's go back to it because Jesus is going to say, after saying these things, uh, I am not speaking about all of you. I know whom I've chosen. This is the, the Thursday night, the Last Supper account. And it's before the institution of the Last Supper that these things take place. And so what he's saying, what he's trying to do in these last few hours that he has on earth is to teach the disciples, the inner circle, as much as he can possibly teach them because they're going to be the ones very shortly who are going to have to carry on this teaching. Of course, in the power of his spirit after so many days, but for a while, they will be the ones who are the, the teachers, the ones who carry on the truth that he's given to them. And so he's finding out real fast that they've learned very little in the three and a half years that, that he's been with them on, on the earth in that close circle. And I think everything we find out from now on, you'll find that this is part of the reason his soul was in such turmoil, because he had spent so much energy and so much time with those he loved that much and those he was depending upon and realized that they knew very little. 
And so he's already said in this 13th chapter that all have not been bathed, all have not been regenerated. There was one, he said, even in this 12, in this inner circle of 12, there was one, Judas, who had not been bathed uh, or regenerated. And he'll go and say that again. He says that several times. So it was not that they shouldn't have known that, but it's interesting to me that they never hear anything he says. They very seldom ever hear anything he says. If they had listened to that, it wouldn't have been uh, so naive when he got down here and he began to talk about this one I give the bread to. Apparently, they didn't even realize then that it was Judas who was going to betray him. And so he says, he who eats bread with me has turned against me. Psalm 41, 9 is the prophecy that we have telling about that. Friends, turn to Psalm 41, 9. Let's just look at that. It says, even the friend whom I trusted, who ate at my table, exalts over my misfortune, hath lifted up his heel against me, is what the King James says. Even this friend who ate at the table with me, Jesus knew what was going to happen, but apparently nobody around him had any kind of, of idea that one of those twelve was going to betray him in this manner. All right, so he says, I'm going to tell you this in truth. I tell you, he who receives any messenger of mine receives me. Receiving me, he receives the one who sent me. And then after this saying, we come to today's lesson. Jesus exclaimed in deep agitation of spirit. His soul was in turmoil again. His soul was very troubled. In that kind of spirit, he speaks in truth, in very truth. Very verily, 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 I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. He'd say, listen very carefully now. One of you, one of these twelve is going to betray me. And, you know, the, the reason his soul was in ter such turmoil is simply this. There's nothing in the world that hurts his bed. We can take anything the world has to hurl at us as Christians. We really can. You can say what you want to say about me if you're outside the, the fold of the faith. Uh, an unsaved person can throw anything he wants to throw. I don't expect anything of him. I really don't. He doesn't know how to really love because he doesn't have Christ. He doesn't know how to react, as Mike said last night, because he doesn't have Christ reacting in and through him. And so I don't expect anything of an unsaved person. I expect them to call me a religious fanatic. I expect them to say I'm weird. I expect them not to like what I do and what I don't. You know, I expect this kind of reaction. But when a Christian, when a Christian begins to hurl abuse at a fellow Christian, that's what hurts. Oh, boy. You don't expect that. You don't. You, you can hardly cope with the abuse that comes within the Christian fold. And it happens. It really does. Sometimes Christians are the world's worst at not zipping their lips. Sometimes Christians are the world's worst sharp tongues. They're the ones who want to criticize the most, starting from the preacher on down. Yak, 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 yak. Always cutting, always putting down, always trying to get somebody's what happens. But when this happens, and when you're hurt from within the foe, your soul begins to absolutely be in turmoil. And so here he's saying, I'm, I'm telling you the truth, one in this circle, one of my inner group, he could take what Pilate was going to do to him, he could take what the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees were going to do to him, he could take any of the abuse from outside the foe, but when it was within this inner circle, one of the ones he had spent three and a half years with, and he, he loved Judas, with as much love as he loved James and Peter and John, or uh, James was one of them, Peter and John and, and all of the rest of them. He loved Judas just as much. He showed just as much care and just as much concern and just as much love to Judas, even knowing during that time that he was not one of, of the true believers. 
But when it came to a place where he realized all that, that time and energy was spent on one who would care nothing about him at the point when they should have reached out in tremendous love, knowing what he was going through, when he found out that one of these was about to betray him, this caused him to be in deep agitation of spirit. So the disciples, when he says, one of you is going to betray me, the disciples began to look at each other in bewilderment and ask, whom would he be speaking of? And we have in the other synoptic gospels, and Brother Malky brought this out Sunday, he has in the other gospels an account where it says that one or the other would ask, you know, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Each one would speak up. Each one of them apparently realized that he had the capability within himself to do this thing, which is complimentary. Because many of us don't ever think, many of us think we're so far above anything like this that we aren't capable of committing any kind of sin. And if we would ever come to the place that the Bible teaches that there's not one sin that any one of us is incapable of committing, even as Christians, every single one of us is capable of committing any given sin when we allow this to happen in our lives, when we allow ourselves to be so far away from God and walking in such darkness that we allow it to happen. All right, so they said that each one of them said, Is it I, Lord, except for Judas? And Judas said, Master, Rabbi, is it I? You see, he's the only one who didn't say Lord, according to the Scripture. He's the only one who said, Rabbi, Master, Teacher, is it I? And you know, in 1 Corinthians, it says that except the Holy Spirit allow you the, the privilege of saying, Lord Jesus, you cannot say it except by the Spirit. You can't call him Lord except the Spirit do it through you. And so here was another case, another case where somebody should have seen that there was something wrong with Judas. But he must have been the greatest actor, the biggest hypocrite who ever lived on this earth. He had everybody fooled except Jesus. He had all those other 11 disciples totally fooled. They never saw him for what he was. He play acted to such a degree that all the way up to the point he was going to betray Jesus, nobody suspected him except that Jesus knew everything that was going on in his heart, every thought that he had, every action that he, he did. He knew whether it was real or whether it was unreal. And I think that's the most staggering thing. If we ever come to the conclusion that that's truth, and we know that God knows every thought that we have, that would bring every one of us to our knees. It would. If you really thought for a minute that there's truth in the Scripture that says he even knows the intents, the thoughts and the intents of your heart. He knows everything about us. We can fool everybody around us. But we know ourselves for what we are. Judas did. He said, Master, not Lord. He knew himself for what he was. But the people around him didn't. And so he says, taking that account, we have to put them all together. He <coughs> asked what, um, so Simon Peter nodded. Jesus, remember the picture was uh, the low table and the reclining benches that they reclined on when they ate. And they would rest on the left arm and eat with the right arm. And you, as you reclined, the one to your right would be leaning on your breast, you know, on your, almost on your, your breast. It was that close a quarter. And so we have John sitting to the right of Jesus. And I mentioned last week that it was brought out, and it, it probably is true, that in this last appeal of love that Jesus gave to Judas, and some people wonder whether or not Judas was predestined from the very beginning and had no control over whether he betrayed Jesus or not. And it's ridiculous to me to think that Jesus would have gone to all this elaborate amount of trouble to woo and win him at the very end if he didn't have a choice as to what he was going to do. And remember, if there's not, if one Judas repents and turns before the act is committed, there's another Judas around. There's always somebody to fulfill the prophecy. 
And I believe with all my heart that Judas was not born to betray Jesus. I believe he had the right to choose right from wrong. And I believe even at this point, Jesus was reaching out with such love to him. And he, he even probably had him on his left, which was that seat of honor. And it, if that were so, it meant that Jesus' head was resting on Judas' breast at this point. And it seems very likely because you find Simon Peter, you would have thought he would have been there, right? He was always the spokesman. You would have thought. But he was apparently far enough from Jesus that he couldn't get to him because have you ever seen Simon ask anybody else to speak for him? Never, never. He opened his mouth and got in more trouble than anybody I've ever seen in the pages of Scripture or in life today. He would never have asked John to ask Jesus who it was. He would have just blurted if he could have had the conversation he wanted to have with Jesus himself. But you know what I got to thinking about? You know, uh, some, there are some people who believe that because Simon Peter was the one who always did the talking to Jesus, that that means that he, was, he never had to go uh, through anybody else. He went straight to Jesus, straight to the Son of God. But here's an example, and because of that, they believe that the descendants of Simon Peter, even today, you know, that the Pope, even today, can go straight to Jesus, and he's the only one. But here's an account that would, would discredit this, because here was one time, at least one time, where Simon Peter went through John to ask Jesus something. Right? That's what he says. He said... John, or to the one he calls himself, John always calls himself the one who, whom the disciple he loved, the disciple Jesus loved. Jesus loved all the disciples, but it's, it's amazing to me that John, the writer of this gospel, never had to advertise himself. He never went around telling, you know, how many times it was John and calling himself by name. He didn't.